Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Todd Phillips, Principal at Phillips Policy Consulting and the former Director of Financial Regulation and Corporate Governance at the Center for American Progress. Todd is also a former FDIC attorney and will be joining us today to discuss his essay, The Fracas at the FDIC, which was recently published in the Duke Law Journal online. I'll link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Todd, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here. Todd, I really enjoyed this essay because I was an outside observer roughly a year ago or so of this fracas at the FDIC. I was interested in what was going on, but I didn't have a full background that I have now having read the essay. So I wondered if you could help get our listeners up to speed and introduce just what was this fracas at the FDIC, what happened, who are some of the players, and what was the source of the controversy? Yeah, so it was a really interesting course of events that happened in December of 2021. Out of the blue, on the CFPB's website, one day there popped up an RFI purporting to be from the FDIC about bank mergers. And that was the thing that really started this whole process going. And over time, we've learned a little bit more. What really happened was with President Biden's coming into office and naming new individuals to the CFPB and OCC, the Democrats on the FDIC had a majority of the board. At the same time that a Republican, Yelena McWilliams, was the chair. And so this caused a real power struggle between McWilliams and the Republicans. She thought that she had the power to set the agenda because she was chair, whereas the Democrats thought that they had the power to set the agenda because they were the majority of the board. And so the RFI was really the product of this struggle. And I'm happy to go into more details about what happened and the whole course of events over about 30 days. Or the listeners can just read that in the paper. That's perhaps the least interesting thing. The more interesting thing to me is what this says about the law. Sure. There was a lot that happened in that 30-day period, but would love to hear a little bit about the back and forth between some of the players. I think you've set up the core conflict, but would love to hear how that played out with the note that your essay is going to go into more detail about the play-by-play. The first thing to note is the structure of the FDIC. So the FDIC is a five-member board of directors. It has three inside directors who are only members of the FDIC's board of directors. And then it also has two outside directors. These are the comptroller of the currency and the director of the CFPB, who both serve as ex officio members of the FDIC's board. The comptroller and the director of the CFPB Both are at-will employees of the president. They can be removed at any time, especially thanks to the SELA law case that the Supreme Court decided in 2020. And when the president shifts, these two positions also shift. And therefore, the partisan makeup of the FDIC also shifts. So when Biden came on, we suddenly had three Democrats and only one Republican. And that was what started this whole ball rolling. 
As your listeners may know, the director of the CFPB, Rohit Chopra, is a really aggressive director. Some would say that is a good thing. Some would say that is a bad thing. But needless to say, Director Chopra is someone who thinks that if folks have power to implement their preferred policies, they should be able to effectuate it. They should be able to use it. And that seems to be what happened here. They thought that the Democrats have a majority of the board. They should be able to issue this request for information. And that's what they tried to do. It turns out that the chair, Chairman McWilliams, had a different understanding. General counsel of the FDIC had a different understanding. And that caused this tussle. At the end of the day, however, the Democrats did win. And on December 31st of 2021, McWilliams submitted her resignation to the president. It seems like she just found she could not control this board in the way she wanted to with her being the chair, but not being in a majority. The reactions were pretty fierce. In Congress, Republicans accused the Democrats of trying to usurp power. The Democrats in Congress argued that McWilliams was going against democracy. This was at the same time, as you recall, the events of January 6th, 2021 were still really fresh in everyone's minds. And it was a huge partisan battle. The press got involved. Usually issues with agency governance don't end up in the New York Times, but somehow this made it there. And academics also got really invested here. Mirsa Bradaran and Jeremy Kress wrote an op-ed in the New York Times talking about how this is a problem and McWilliams should either resign or at least back off her position. Adam Levitin had a piece in Politico calling for Biden to fire McWilliams. It was really heated. That's some of the play-by-play and the reactions that followed or the resignation of, of McWilliams. You highlighted that the interesting thing here is the law. And I wonder if you could tell me about the law in this case, the statute forming the FDIC, the bylaws of the FDIC, who was right and who was wrong in this battle between two opposing factions on the FDIC board. One problem in all of this, or one of the things that led to the fracas is that there just really isn't a whole lot of law here. The Supreme Court has rarely heard cases where members of a commission or board are fighting against each other. So it was really almost a novel thing. At the FDIC, there were a set of bylaws governing this. And it seems that the Democrats really were in the right under the bylaws. A section of the bylaws allowed any member to propose an item for a vote through a written mechanism, sending an email, circulating a note. And it seems like that's what they did, what the Democrats did. And so it really seems that they were acting appropriately here. After all of this went down, in the middle of last year, the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice put out an opinion basically saying that, yes, the Democrats were in the right here, but it was really only based on what those bylaws said. Although we may want to pull from this fracas and apply the principles learned to other agencies, there's not much we can do here until and unless courts get involved. Among other things, Although the Office of Legal Counsel can put out an opinion, independent agencies aren't bound to follow what OLC says. 
So even if OLC did weigh in on statutory authority here, broad principles of common law governance, agencies in the future wouldn't be bound to follow it. You allude to the possibility that this is a case that might have some lessons for other agencies. And the issue at the FDIC was literally an issue about the FDIC, but it quickly led to the question about whether there could be a similar fracas at the Federal Reserve. Both are important agencies, of course, but the Federal Reserve is perhaps more prominent. Could you set up that question of could the same thing happen potentially at the Federal Reserve where there is a conflict between the majority of the Fed board and the chair? What led to this question and what is making some commentators concerned about the prospect of a similar fracas at the Federal Reserve Board? At the same time that all of this was happening at the FDIC, new appointees to the Federal Reserve Board were being vetted and were being nominated by President Biden and going through Senate confirmation. And the Republicans on the Senate Banking Committee really honed in on this issue, asking President Biden's nominees to the Fed whether they would, whether they could create another fracas like this at the Fed. The Fed engages in monetary policy which is perhaps more important than the bank regulation that occurs at the FDIC, having something like this happen at the Fed would be much higher stakes. Lael Brainerd was going through confirmation, was being asked if there could be this kind of hijacking at the Fed. Senator Pat Toomey called it a coup and asked Sarah Bloom Raskin whether she would engage in such an activity. Really a lot of aggressive language here. This leads my paper to what would actually happen at the Federal Reserve if this type of thing did occur and whether this type of thing really could occur. The answer is it's really unlikely that a fracas like this could happen at the Fed. And that's for a couple of reasons. First, the Fed doesn't have the same kind of turnover that the FDIC does. As I mentioned, when a new president comes into office, two members of the FDIC automatically switch over because a new president will name a comptroller and a CFPB director of their party. The Fed, on the other hand, governors have 14-year terms, and the president cannot fire them. Even though Fed governors don't tend to stay on the board for a full 14 years, Peter Conti Brown of Wharton has done a study finding that they only serve 5.2 years on average. But even then, that turnover is longer than a four-year presidential term and doesn't necessarily coincide with a presidential term. So there's just less of a need for associate governors to override the chair. In addition, the Fed has different laws. The Federal Reserve Act explicitly provides that the chair assigns responsibility for performing functions to the staff and explicitly provides that the chair is the acting executive officer. Under law, it is the chair who decides what the agency does and what items are presented to the board for a vote. That being said, governance at the Fed is still more diffuse than at the FDIC. So the Fed has eight different committees that the governors serve on. And even though statutorily staff report to the chair, The way it works in practice is that staff report to these committees of governance. So, for example, 
The Federal Reserve's Division of Consumer and Community Affairs reports directly to the chair of the Committee on Consumer and Community Affairs. The Division on Supervision and Regulation reports directly to the chair of the Supervision and Regulation Committee. And so there's just more of a potential for individual governors to influence policy before it even comes up for a vote. And so there's just less of a need for a type of fracas that happened at the FDIC to occur at the Fed. It's just really unlikely to happen because of a different set of circumstances. There are, of course, a lot of independent agencies in the federal government that have this collegial setup as opposed to having a single director or administrator where you've got a chair and three or more other members of the board or the collegial agency. If you are writing a chapter in an admin law textbook on the structure of collegial agencies, what might this case teach us? What might you incorporate from this case into that chapter to help us understand maybe the role of chairs in collegial agencies or think about what should be the role of chairs in collegial agencies? I will take this opportunity to pitch another paper of mine that is coming out very soon in the Yale Journal on Regulation called Commission Chairs, where I dig into that very question. I look at the statutes of agencies all across the government, not just focusing on the FDIC and the Fed that I've done here. I find that in practice, chairs generally have two authorities. They have chief executive officer authority, where they get to tell staff what to do. They also have agenda setting authority where they get to bring items up for a vote to the full commission. And while that's all well and good, I think that we also need to pay attention to the fact that the other directors or commissioners are individuals with their own preferences and priorities. And if a majority is just of a different ideological stripe than the chair, we're going to have issues like this. It's not necessarily textbook takeaway, but I think one thing that's really important for the Supreme Court as it begins evaluating removal protections for individual officers, as it did for the CFPB director and the FHFA director, is that they need to be cognizant of issues like this. And if they get rid of removal protections for some official, it could have serious implications for the functioning of the administrative agencies that we rely on to protect food, water, health, safety, the stability of the financial system. In addition, I think Congress needs to think about how different directors interact when creating multi-member agencies. Obviously, Congress did not think that the CFPB director's removal protections would be found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Now that that is law, if they create more multi-member agencies in the future, they need to think about whether the members will actually be able to work together to get things done, or if there will be changes in officials when the president turns over and everything might blow up just like it did here at the FDIC. Our guest today has been Todd Phillips, principal at Phillips Policy Consulting and the former director of financial regulation and corporate governance at the Center for American Progress. We've discussed his essay, The Fracas at the FDIC, which was recently published in the Duke Law Journal online. I'll add a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Todd, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.